Welcome back to Literary Guys. Today we're continuing our discussion of A Gentleman in Moscow by Amar Tolls. Today we'll be talking about books three and four with chapter titles such as Antics, Antitheses, An Accident, and Adagio, Andante, and Allegro, which really speaks to the flowery language that we've talked about for the previous two episodes here. And do, do, does my mic pick up those belabored sighs I was giving? I, I, I think you, you want to get your face right into the microphone as, you know, I, I, because it's not capturing the eye roll sound that I'm getting here as well. Sure, sure. Yeah. So uh, specifically, these are the chapters that deal with Sophia. Mm-hmm. And the Count's interaction. And, and with Sophia is who? Let's remind the listeners. So Sophia is the daughter of Nina, who is left with the Count as she goes off to Siberia and never returns. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to be talking about what this means, how it, this is incredibly disruptive to the, the routine the Count has created. But before we get started here... Let me introduce myself. I'm Dr. Gordon McAllen, and my co-host, as always... Sitting across the booth from Dr. McAllen, I'm Zachary Kellyan, live from the Stardust Lounge. And the Stardust is having what appears to be a very successful steak special this evening. It is a, a very large tomahawk steak, and um, I have to say, it's looking pretty good right now. If I was smarter, there's a steak tartare joke to be made. And Crystal, our usual bar back here, has just dropped off the next cocktail for me, which will be something very classic, uh, which is so simple. Just vodka soda. Sometimes you can't go wrong with that. We got we got some complaints. Uh, we were, I guess, getting a little too heated uh, when it came to our discussions of whether or not the count sucks. And so, the count does uh, not suck, by the way. They, uh, they switched us to vodka sodas. There's a lot to unpack in these chapters, uh, and as much as I would like to focus the discussion on the making of the Bullia Bays, which I think is really the highlight, <laughs> if, uh, if I can say, of pretty much the book, is, um, is, is I want to talk about the, the evolution of the Count during this time, and also how he, he becomes what I would think of as maybe a little bit more of a traditional father. He does, but again, this is part of the thing that bothers me so much about the Count and how the character is written. He is not a man who has earned fatherhood. He had fatherhood thrust upon him. Um, this kind of deus ex machina plot device comes out of nowhere. This child is dropped on his lap. Yes, I agree with you. He does learn some things about himself and he does grow, but there's no agency in that growth. It's just something that happens to him and he adapts over time. Okay, I, I think that's actually a, a fair point, uh, but it does allow us still to see the evolution of the character, whether or not, the, if you feel that the motivation or the, the underlying cause is legitimate or not, we do see him figure out how to raise a child in what I have to say is a rather uniquely Count-like way. For sure. Um, would you say if this revolution never happened, if the Count had returned to Russia and his privileged life. Was he ever going to get married? I think I think we were kind of introduced to him in his 30s. 
And by that time, he's a he's a fairly old man to not be having children, to not be raising a family. Was that something that he had ever designed for himself? I wasn't able to get a gauge for it. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. We haven't talked a whole lot on, on the podcast yet here about the other story, the story that's revealed through the course of the entire book, actually. Which actually shows the count with some agency. I would rather hear the other story. I literally found the the Metropole story far more captivating than this slowly revealing story about his family and about the revolution and about uh, what he what he needed to do. I don't know. Do you want to summarize this at all? And it's got pistol fighting. It's got revenge dating. It's got blackmail. It's got an actual villain. It's a wonderfully intriguing plot. Essentially, um, the Count has this disagreement with this man. Uh, if I remember paraphrasing but if i remember he said the man is the type who will race to a party uh but then uh trot away from his indiscretions or something like that he's just a guy who the count just doesn't get along with he's not a classy gentleman like the count uh to the point that he eventually offends this guy in his correcting of his behavior and the guy bangs his sister just out of revenge and of course this being i think uh, early 1900s, if not late 1800s, when this part of the story takes place, uh, the Count must avenge his sister's uh, dishonor. And so he uh, tracks this guy down, uh, shoots him in the shoulder. I don't think he intends to kill him, if I remember correctly. The Count is an excellent marksman, which, again, would have been a cool plot point to have seen in the actual Metropole part of the novel. But uh, the guy does eventually succumb to his injuries and dies, and the Count has to be sent away. That's why he's not really a part of the beginnings of the revolution and is kind of um, just returning to Moscow at the beginning. So that's the whole backstory, which Mm -hmm. to me shows a man with some agency, shows a man with some chutzpah, shows a guy who's going to take matters into his own hands. And I don't see that man at all when we get to know the count in terms of his uh, incarceration in the Metropole. Mm -hmm. It's also around these chapters when we find out something we alluded to in a previous episode, which was that... Uh, that his incarceration in the Metropole was actually the thing that had saved his life. The poem which uh, the Count had claimed he had written in order to Mm -hmm. save his friend, Mm -hmm. which is a very honorable move, ended up being also something which uh, good fortune uh, caused him not to be executed, as he likely would have been had he been uh, a free man. So there's a few quotes here that I want to, uh, to dig into from the the lens of the masculinity discussions that we've had. The first one is... Mark my words, my friend. We have not burned Moscow to the ground for the last time. I bring this up because I think that there is a trope, if you will, in masculinity of men, perhaps hard-headed men, who, for the right reasons and for honor, make the same mistakes over and over again. And it's almost sure. like they're, they're fated to do it. And, and I feel like in that quote that we're seeing that, that aspect of masculinity, uh, this sort of inescapable notion that, that men are self-destructive and that they, they cannot escape the fact that they will destroy the things they create. You know, I mean, Freud would agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, men are just driven uh, beyond the pleasure principle to to their own deaths. And I think I think it's an unfortunate reality, especially for men of this time, men of the 20th and 19th centuries, where 
that was kind of the life ascribed to you, regardless of the class that you're in, especially when Russia was under upheaval at the time. Uh, death was death was coming for you whether you wanted to or not. So it's really the definition of manhood, what made you a man, was how you chose to face that death as it came. So we've talked about men in different capacities being put in positions that they do not want to be in. Uh, we recently spoke about the bridges to Tokuri and about how uh, one of the main characters was conscripted into service against his will. And what did he make of that? And, you know, he ended up making an honorable life for himself. Maybe not in in the way that he would have otherwise chosen, being a lawyer in the Midwest, if I believe the the story was. uh, Right. That it's about in the circumstances you have, how do you... How do you still achieve some sort of greatness? And I think that that's definitely uh, a recurring theme that we're going to see. But it, it's just this notion of the the archetypal masculine character eventually becomes self-destructive. Well, I believe we're at the, the point in the book where the, the Count is standing on the rooftop uh, considering taking his own life. I believe that happened earlier in the book. Okay, but that, you know, that is something that we haven't addressed yet. And I think, you know, that I could relate to that, right? That would suck just being, even though you're in a five-star hotel, it would suck just being locked up like that yeah. and not really having true freedom. And for a man like the Count, though, I thought it was interesting that that was his way out. His way out wasn't, you know overtaking the guards and rushing onto the street and you know trying to make some grandiose final stand for mother russia Mm -hmm. it was just he was just going to peter out and just kind of tip over the edge of a roof and splatter on the cobblestones below i'm glad he didn't of course and i could certainly relate to uh, how fraught he was and depressed he was in that moment but it also just struck me as man here's the count just not having agency again Mm -hmm. because he I believe it was actually the, uh, was it the beekeeper? Abram, I believe, huh. was the hotel handyman and uh, indeed is beekeeper. Yeah, who, who ended up saving him. Mm-hmm. Uh, not intentionally so, but, you know, was just there to be a friendly face, a, a welcoming hand. And, you know, it just, there was another instance where other people stepped in to correct the, the Count's life. And I, I do agree with you that the Count that we know in this part of the book is a much more relatable guy, is is becoming a bit stronger in character, but I attribute that to Sophia and the responsibility that was thrust upon him in being her surrogate father. So I want to jump now to a different aspect of masculine behavior. Uh, and, and I'm going to read a quote here, a um, somewhat lengthy quote, which is, uh, in the context of a character, we meet a Richard Vanderweil. Some might wonder that the two men should consider themselves to have been old friends, having only known each other for four years. But the tenure of friendships has never been governed by the passage of time. These two would have felt like old friends had they just met hours before. To some degree, that was because they were kindred spirits finding ample evidence of common ground and cause for laughter in the midst of effortless conversation. But it was also almost certainly a matter of upbringing. Raised in grand homes and cosmopolitan cities, educated in liberal arts, graced with idle hours, and exposed to the finest things, though the Count and the American had been born ten years and four thousand miles apart, they had more in common with each other than they had the majority of their own countrymen. 
I think this quote is is absolutely fascinating because I think it speaks to the the need for friendship that men have mm-hmm. that is to use a word here that's often more about the military, but it's about camaraderie. Right. And the thing here is that Richard Vanderweil is not a Russian. He is an American. He is someone who the Count probably would have been completely unrelatable to, uh, is the Count who we first met. They had very different upbringings. They had very different, different styles of interaction. But there was something. There was a spark there. And the character of Richard becomes uh, an essential part of the, of the conclusion of this novel. And, and I think it's so fascinating that, that we get a character who transcends what you would think of as someone who the Count would relate to. And yet there is an indelible bond which is formed almost instantaneously between these two men. Yeah, I think that one of the things we do see about the Count is that if people give him a chance, which some in Metropole do not, but if people give him a chance, he is able to develop very meaningful relationships with everybody he comes across, regardless of their station in life, regardless of their upbringing. He is very adaptable in that, and I think willing to give people, uh, I'm not going to remember the exact quote, but there's a great moment in there where he talks about kind of giving, people are so complex, everyone deserves a second look. And I think that really is a nice lesson we can learn about being a man, that we do learn from the Count, who, again, not the biggest fan of, but I do really like his take on that. I love how flexible and amiable he is in terms of developing those friendships with men, with women, with children, giving everybody a chance, trying to understand everybody's station in life, and trying to relate to them as best he can. I think it's a common conundrum that I've heard a lot about, which is the difficulty of men forming meaningful relationships after a certain age. That they, they, they tend to to not have those like deep connections. Things tend, as they get older, to be more superficial in terms of, of relationships. And this is, this is the part in uh, drinking where I tend to get religious. Of course, the joke is the only miracle that Jesus was really responsible for was having 12 friends in his 30s. I think that's along the lines of what you're talking about. Yes, uh, that's exactly it. It's this thing, and, and I'm not sure if it's about men in general or masculinity or if it's if it's a product of of nature itself that this becomes something which is much more difficult but i believe that when people do connect in a way that we hear about in the connection between the count and richard that those things uh they, they can just form in a heartbeat and it's very difficult sometimes to pin down exactly why that is it is you know you and i are very different types of men. We're, this is podcast so far has probably been a great as any representation of how we differ in terms of our viewpoints on life. But we've also been friends for more than 20 years now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it always makes me wonder, would we be open-minded enough to embrace each other like we have to be as close as we are if we met at this stage in our life? I think the interesting thing about the Count is, I'm sure he has many great social friends from his time in the aristocracy. They've all been murdered by firing squad now, and he is thrust into this new world where he's got to learn how to adapt and make new male friendships, new friendships in general. I think the two kids, the two female children in this are the ones that kind of open his mind up. You know, they take him on these adventures of the mind and of the imagination, and they are far more precocious than he is. They're far more curious than he is about the world around them. And I think that that 
as what I can attribute to the Count's growth and that he's able to make these types of friendships now at this point in the novel. Well, I certainly would hope if we did meet now that we would still be great friends. Uh, can't, can't say for certain if that would, would or would not be the case, but I certainly hope that that would be true. You're drinking a vodka soda that is 50% vodka, so I think we'd be friends. Okay. You know, one of the things that I kind of wanted to talk about takes away from the conversation of masculinity a little bit, but this is also a book club. One of the things that uh, annoyed me about this novel is how twee and self-aware and intelligent both of the small children are in this. I don't know how much interaction you've had with small children. Uh, prior to my life as a writer, I was in charge of a national children's charity. Uh, we paused. Someone set off the fire alarm for smoking in the uh, Stardust Lounge bathroom. you think they'd fix that. It should just be a smoking bar at this point. Well, someone crossed off the word no on the no smoking sign, so now it just seems like a dare. Devilish. Absolutely devilish. Um, the, the, the notion that these two children are so preternaturally intelligent and aware of the world around them is a plot device that always annoys me when I'm reading because that's not how kids actually are. There's a lot of smart kids out there. There's a lot of self-aware kids out there, but this, both Nina and Sophia as children read as adults in kids' bodies. And I often find that that's a plot device that, um, writers who have written themselves into a corner will use. Not to be overly critical, but I was just kind of wondering what you what your take on that was. Are these kids realistic? Do these kids kind of mesh with the world around them? So if I'm basing my entire understanding of children on the wonderful SNL sketch, Wells for Boys, then I'm going to say yes, they are completely realistic. But in reality, I, I don't think that they are terribly believable characters. I think that as they get older, they get mo- much more believable. I, I, yes. I think that children who have been raised in a very intellectual first type environment, and let's face it, having the count around is going to cause that to, to be the case. He was a great uh, teacher in that regard. The games they play, you know, naming, was it threes they play? Oh, yes, yeah. It's about celebrating intellectualism. And I think it's something that, that these days sometimes is frowned upon. But it doesn't mean that it's terribly realistic. The encyclopedic knowledge of like all these characters who are in the Count's orbit, that it just doesn't make sense in that regard. Do I enjoy it for the sake of a novel that is fun to read and that is engaging in a way that many books just don't ever attempt to be? Yeah, I, I do. Do I think it's realistic and that I expect to meet these children? No. No, I don't at all. I mean, just as much as I don't expect to meet Ron Weasley. Like, you know, it's not a, a, a thing that is necessarily realistic. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to enjoy the characterization. Yeah, you know, I think you bring up an interesting point, too, about, about intellectualism. I think that is something that this novel and its writing style are championing and are adoring the celebration of. And if you can look at this as kind of a, a fantastical journey through the world of art, culture, intellectualism, I can get around some of the more um, purple prose that we see throughout. Uh, just on a whim, while you were making that point, I thought I'd look up um, Amor Tolls on Wikipedia. And if, if I may, um, here's what the, it says about this graduate of Yale and Stanford's personal life. In full... Tolls resides in Gramercy Park, Manhattan, New York, with his wife, Maggie, their son, Stokely, and their daughter, Esme. 
Tolls is a collector of fine art and antiquities. I just enjoy that because that is the man who wrote this book to a T. Mm-hmm. And if you can get around that, uh, th- this book truly has, I think, some of the best language of any book that we're likely to read this year. Uh, he, he does such a wonderful job exploring some of the nuances. And, and I think that there's probably, and I know that you've picked out a couple quotes that you love dearly. Th- there's some quotes that are imbued with some really good wisdom. You know, I can see them cross-stitched on a pillow somewhere or, you a know. very large pillow <laughs> with very small print. Uh, the, the sentence literally runs on to the back of the pillow. Yeah. And but then onto the couch, and then onto the adjoining pillow. But I do think that uh, this man's love and intimacy with commas aside, I, I do think that there there is a lot to be gained from any part of this book in pieces. But as a whole, when you take all of its components, especially in this middle, these two middle sections that we've discussed uh, last week and today, it just falls flat for me. I liked the opening. I think it ends nicely. But the whole middle section for me just drags and seems a little bit too confident in itself, a little too charmed by its own uh, bon mots. Well, I think our listeners are probably picking up on the fact that you have some faults with this book. That doesn't mean that we aren't able to still get sponsors for this novel, which, again, for our listeners, I enjoyed quite a bit, even though I respect the fact that it does have its shortcomings. You know, I think the fact that we are... uh, tackling this book and we're also a new podcast I think that does reflect the level of sponsors that we're able to get Uh, this sponsor is a little more niche than most but they paid for some ad space so we're going to give it to them five star Moscow hotels drop your kid off anytime for any reason husband locked away in a gulag in Siberia oblivious governess bring your child to one of our elite hotel chains where a man of questionable titillage will adopt them free of charge five star Moscow hotels We're here when the plot necessitates. So if I'm not mistaken, that sponsorship is due largely in part to a number of misleading Yelp reviews. (laughs) And uh, so I'm happy to see that that they're they're putting a positive message out because uh, if you're going to be five stars, you're going to be five stars. You know, they are aware as... You can't be 2.3 stars on Yelp and be a five-star hotel. You just can't be. And I think they're they're aware that, you know, anybody reading The Gentleman in Moscow might have questions about this man's multiple relationships with much younger girls. But they're here to let you know it's not weird. We've got older men under house arrest, and you can trust your children with them. (laughs) Well, on that note, I think we should probably wrap up this episode. And in our episode next week, we will be concluding our discussion of A Gentleman in Moscow with what we can describe as the escape in many different ways. Uh, I'd like to thank, as always, my co-host, Zach Kellyan. I'd like to thank the Stardust Lounge. And I, I think at this point, this booth is becoming like our booth. Like I, I thought they just were keeping us here to keep us away from the other patrons. But now I'm beginning to suspect that this is getting some sort of gravitas associated. With I feel like I feel like we can lay claim to this, which is uh, something I'm quite proud of. Uh, by the way, Dr. McCallan, who do we got tinkling the ivories tonight? That would be Edgar Bergamot, and um, there uh, appears to be a small child with him today. Uh, I believe Edgar was telling us that that child was just dropped off to him moments ago, but he will be raising that child, no questions asked, as their surrogate father. 
Well, just to be clear, does she speak with the vocabulary of a 60-year-old English professor? I wouldn't know. She's spoken only in Russian since she's been here tonight. Okay. So a 60-year-old Russian professor. <laughs> well, I look forward to the discussions of Chekhov that we will be having, perhaps Tolstoy, to be featured in our next season of Literary Guys, uh, focused exclusively on Russian literature. But until then, our conclusion next week of our series on this book, uh, this has been Literary Guys, signing off.